I appreciate uh, people expressing that they've been praying for me and my family, especially this uh, week. Grace left on Wednesday to go to a Women's Gospel Coalition conference in Orlando, Florida, and I have been with uh, both taking care of Ruby and Samuel since then, and Somebody joked when I said I was teaching on where the title was, What's amazing, So Amazing About Grace? They're like, well, are you talking about your wife, Grace? And there's, after this week of being with the children and preparing for a sermon and just everything else, it's, I could almost do a sermon series on what's so amazing about Grace, my wife, because it just makes me appreciate everything that she does to support our home. So anyhow... Uh, thank you for your, your prayers for us. Um, I just wanted to make a quick announcement or just wanted to share something before we get started um, that I haven't ever been able to do. And that is some of you uh, were here when Grace and I left four years ago to uh, attend Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. And it was uh, then it was under the blessing of this fellowship that they said that we want to commit uh, to supporting Stephen Grace as a couple who is going to go through theological and pastoral education. And so the church generously uh, chose to support basically 50% of our tuition. And with that and a scholarship that, we re- that, that I received um, at Covenant, we basically have gone through three to four years of seminary completely debt-free because of the commitment that you all had, <laughs> which is great, yeah. It's, it's amazing to, to just have that comfort, and um, I have just been continually enriched by my time at Covenant. It continues to work on me, and, uh, and it's only because you all, um, even when we were only about 80 or so people said, yeah, we want to support Stephen Grayson. Now you all are doing that with Matt and Jessica Wilson at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I just want to say um, thank you for that. I haven't had that opportunity to say that, so thank you. Um, I may go a little longer than usual. Um, uh, there's, this, this, this is a rich passage um, that we'll be dealing with. Before I, we, we dig in, um, there's a book that I have used for discipleship um, that I love that is sort of related to what I'm talking about today, which is called Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. I cannot commend this uh, highly enough for you all. It's a great book. Um, really easy to read, but just, man, so refreshing, so... Um, So I commend that to you. We will be in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. Um, And as you're turning your Bibles there, um, as you you, you all are probably, a lot of you are probably familiar with that passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um, The book or letter uh, uh, to the Ephesians or the church in Ephesus or churches in Ephesus um, is a common uh, letter or book that we will read often when uh, people come to know Jesus and they're like, okay, where can I go? What, what, what books or letters should I be reading? Ephesians is up there um, and, and one of the books that I'll first point people to. Um, I was having a conversation with A. Barron and he said that that's you know, his go-to uh, l- book or letter. And so really I'm not doing anything uh, groundbreaking per se, but I love the book and letter to the Ephesians because it's both rich in orthodoxy, that is theology, but also orthopraxy, which is kind of the practical implications of our theology, that it it does uh, such a great job of highlighting both. And so Paul writes this letter to the church, or churches in Ephesus, emphasizing and highlighting the redemptive, cosmic, cosmic redemption of God through the raising 
and lifting up of his son and the work in Jesus Christ. And so there's this high emphasis on the work of Christ and what he's done in our lives, but also the practical implications of that reality. So oftentimes Paul in this letter is is promoting and, and emphasizing the need for believers to be unified in the church and in the families and in your homes. And so there's this beautiful emphasis of, of what Christ has done. So now live this way. And so let me read aloud our, our passage today as we dive into God's word. Starting in verse 1, it says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that you have brought us into this new day in which we can come together as a body, Lord, uh, to worship in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we know that with a body this size that we have, we're coming today with anxiety Some of us, some of us are coming with fear, perhaps anger, a whole host of things that can trouble our hearts. And Father, let this be a time in which we can knit ourselves together by the power of the Holy Spirit and the work that you have accomplished through Christ, Lord, that we would just get a sense of joy in what you're doing in our lives and in this church and in this world. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus who is renewing all things through him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever noticed that most often some of the biggest, best inventions um, always seem to create more problems than they do good? Let Let me give an example of that. Take, for example, dynamite, right? Alfred Nobel who the the Nobel Peace Prize is named after, invented dynamite, wanted to invent dynamite so that mining community or miners would not have to use gunpowder. Rather, they would have a controlled explosive device that not only would make mining more efficient, it would also save more lives. And not with a decade had passed since him inventing dynamite, was dynamite being used as a means, a weapon of warfare. Isn't that interesting? I've always thought that interesting, that no matter how much humanity attempts to find solutions to its problems, new and sometimes even more devastating results occur. occur. 
antibiotics is another one. Antibiotics are good. I take antibiotics. I'm not saying don't take antibiotics, but we've seen that slowly in time that, you know, though they're used to treat infections, they become more and more resistant over time. The Internet, which was originally used for scientists to share data and information to each other, through a network is now being used as a constant pipeline of sewage, like, for instance, pornography and slander and gossip, and terrorists use it to communicate with one, each, one another, and so on and so forth. Smartphones would be another one, right? They're great. My smartphone is dead, so I, maybe I'm not as high on smartphones right now as I usually would be, but they're great. They're helpful, but what happens? We use them too much, right? Something amazing is occurring before our eyes, and we're there taking pictures or recording it or texting while we're driving. You know, whatever we do, no matter what the solutions that we create to sort of save and help out humanity, it always seems like somehow there's a whole host of other problems that come, come with it. That humanity from its very beginnings has always been about trying to save itself. And, and the interesting thing is that we can apply this to our spiritual lives as well. You know, kind of that bootstrap theology that we, if we can just, we sort of make our, our own spiritual lives, if we can do the right things, if we say the right things, then maybe then that we'll be saved. If we just try harder, work together a little more, live, live a good life, have a positive impact on people, then maybe, maybe then God will have favor on us. That we alone can save us. And this was probably something that Paul was addressing in the church in Ephesus, and he makes that very clear in starting in verse 1 in chapter 2, that apart from God, humans in no way can save themselves, whether physically or spiritually. The truth is that Paul paints, which is very vivid, is that we are dead, that human beings, all human beings are hopeless, wretched, and he uses a, a word that we just kind of push back against, that we are destined for wrath. But God. But God loved us. Not only does it show the, how hopeless we are, but it also emphasizes and highlights the love and mercy of a holy and just God. So, I think part of what this passage shows is because God has rescued us, we must serve him. God has mercifully saved us by his grace. And the awesomeness of his grace is the lens I want to use when looking at this passage. Now, um, I was meeting with Mike, and he was asking me how, how things are going spiritually, and I just was honest. I said, Mike, it's been really dry recently. Kind of hit a dry season. And we started talking about that, and he was helpful in all the ways he can be helpful. But what I love, and, and hopefully this is what I, I hope more than anything that you all will see or get out of this, is that when we start to talk about grace and we embrace a biblical doctrine of grace, that that can really start to stir our affections, our, our love, our passion for God. And as I'm reading God's word and I'm digging into this passage, my heart just becomes, starts to, to become more alive. I'm, I'm sort of awakening from that spiritual slumber. So if any of you are, are weary or, or in slumber, spiritually speaking, or do not know yet know Christ, I just hope that the doctrine of grace more than anything will show you how much the creator of all things loves you. So with this um, said, there's three points that I want to uh, illustrate that are in your outline about grace. What is so amazing about grace? Well, first, it points us to a Savior. Second, grace magnifies the mercy and kindness of our Savior. And third, grace 
uh, enables us to serve our Savior. That's where I'm going today as we dig in. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Paul's going to use three images of life before Christ. And the first one that he uses is that we were dead. That we were dead not only in our sins, but also our trespasses. That we are, by nature, we are guilty of the sins of omission, but also the sins of commission. That we missed the mark. That we, we, we've, we've sinned, but also that we trespass. And that idea of trespass is, you know, there's a straight path right here. And if I deviate from one or the other, that I'm trespassing an area that I should not go, either knowingly or unknowingly. So the point that Paul is making is that in totality of your relationship to God, you are spiritually dead, not physically, of course. That we, are, um, that we have gone off the right, uh, off the, uh, right path. This, is, uh, this might be funny to some. This is the closest thing that I could imagine to a zombie apocalypse, right? The, the walking dead, that there are people right now embodying this world that are living, living physically but dead spiritually, We had no desire, prior to Christ, we had no desire to pursue holiness, to be under God's authority, to be conformed by God's word, and then to also worship and serve alongside with God's people. Before Christ, we were, with regards to our spiritual selves, totally and utterly dead. Without Christ, we were hopeless. Without Christ, we were dead. Not only were we dead, as if that's just not enough to to be hit with a hammer, but Paul also says that we walked in disobedience. That we walked in in disobedience. And and really what he's getting at is that we were enslaved by the ways and ruler of the world. Well, what what are those ways? What were those ways? Well, I think that anything that is contrary to the character and purposes of God. Paul is saying that we didn't value the things that God values. Justice, compassion, faithfulness, mercy, generosity, chastity, among a whole host of other virtues. That sure, maybe at times we thought those ideas were noble, but we did not embrace and value the very nature, the character of God. And so in that, we did not um, embrace or value the purposes of God. So what does that look like? I was thinking about this. We didn't value what God values. So what we did value is we valued uh, the values of the world, the mantras of this world. So what are some of the mantras that I've heard in doing college ministry and just in life? Well, you know, the old one, money, money, money. Make as much money as possible. Make a name for yourself. Live in the moment. Do what feels good. Follow your heart. Who am I to judge? Coexist. You only live once. And on and on and on these mantras go that just run contrary to the gospel. Ultimately, people enslaved to the world can only think and care about themselves and about their activities and values that affect this present age. They have no concerns for the internal, and that was us, that we weren't thinking eternally. We only thought about the immediate, live the moment. That, that, that was what that characterized us prior to Christ. And not only that, Paul doesn't just say that we walked in disobedience, that ultimately we were under the, under the direct authority of the prince of darkness who is alluded to be Satan. That ultimately we were under the obedience or under the, 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 the slavery of 
Satan. So ultimately, we are servants to, or excuse me, ultimately, we are enemies of God by our association to the prince of darkness that he refers to. So, not only has Paul said that we are dead, not only has he said that we are enslaved, Paul is also now going to say that we actually lived to do evil, that our hearts were inclined to do that which was contrary to God. Paul is not only saying um, those two things, but also that we lived for evil. And the thought in this verse is that in our former state, we were, may I suggest, because he says that we were sons of wrath, that we were actually closer to the wrath of God, more so than we were actually close to in relationship to God. Now listen, um, I don't want to be the guy that preaches wrath, the wrathful God. You know, Jonathan Edwards had that, pin that sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, that sort of thing. But we have, think for a moment, that we have been impacted by a story about the character of God as this mean, kind of malcontent in the clouds who just wants to throw lightning bolts at people and make people squirm, and that is not the biblical picture of God. So anytime that we talk about God's wrath, we also have to talk about God's justice. I believe fundamentally that God is a God of justice and holiness. And so, in order to affirm those things, we have to also affirm the idea that God is wrathful. And so, he says that we were actually sons of wrath. And we'll get to the liberating part of that, the weight of this uh, passage in the next point. But Paul is ratcheting up the rhetoric so that we can feel the weight of our state. Here's why this is important to point out. Because if we discuss, if we have a right view of our depravity and we want to actually have a doctrine of grace, well, our only, the doctrine of grace is only as solid and helpful as to the extent that we understand just how bleak and dire our situation actually was. And so we, we need to realize that our sins have an effect on us. And sins have an effect on people, right? A, a, a child growing up in an abusive home, the father or mother isn't just sinning against God themselves, but he, that's actually damaging the little ones that are present, that are a part of that, that, that home, right? When, uh, when, when uh, a company cooks the books to help uh, promote profits, right? They're not just doing wrong to God, but they're also affecting other people. Other people are going to be affected by their choices. And so Paul wants us to feel the totality of our nature so that we can see how sweet grace truly is. Recently, uh, Grace and I were at a jewelry store looking at necklaces. And uh, if you've been there, they have this like black uh, velvet board about this size, right? And you look at them. And you'll say, I want to look at that. And before they, they pull out the, the, the jewelry, what they'll do is they'll unfold that velvet black board. And then what they'll do is they'll, they'll put the, the, the piece of jewelry against that velvet black board and it just sparkles, just beautiful. It's glorious against that dark black board that you can barely, you, you don't even see any color. So it really contrasts the, the depths of darkness on one end but also the gleaming, glorious beauty of that piece of jewelry. 
And I think that's what grace does. That grace, as we start to look at ourselves, we're able to confront and look at how we actually were prior to Christ. That, that grace itself will start to work in us so that we can confront and we can start to deal with our own former selves. You know, thinking about my story and just the stories of others that I talk to, right? We've, we've done things that, thought things that if we could just, if, if that was to somehow be exposed to everybody to see, we would want to just perish. And yet, because of God's grace, God only, because of what Christ done, has done, he only sees the beauty of Christ's work against the backdrop of our sin. And so, how might we glean an application from this? Well, I don't presume all here are saved, that all of you here that are sitting in these chairs know and have a relationship with Christ. So for some, that's the first place. And I'll keep hitting that through this sermon. But also, perhaps in the way that we are going to see that we've been reconciled with Christ, maybe God is going to well inside yourselves an area of repentance meaning an area that we need to confess before the Lord, but also an area that we may need to be reconciled with someone else. Again, as God's word comes in and I'm preparing for this sermon, I realize, you know, I said something to a guy that was, could have been hurtful and I didn't intend it to be that way. And so I call him and say, brother, I need to meet with you so I can apologize for what I said. Nothing scandalous, nothing crazy, but just that's, that's, that's it. Like as, as Paul is saying, because God has reconciled to himself, we need to reconcile with each other. So what are, some, what, what are some of the areas in your life right now that you know that you can identify as best as you're able, areas that you may need to be reconciled with one another? Is there somebody in the church that has offended you for something that they knowingly did or unknowingly did? Is there a family member? Is there an area that you need to confess before God that you have not yet done? Further, as we come to, um, oh, excuse me. So that's the first point that I wanted to go and land is that um, grace magnifies or, or shows us, illuminates how we need a Savior. And so we are left there with this a feeling of alienation and rebellion from a holy God, that we are serving Satan, the evil one. But now let's let the fresh breeze of grace sort of come into this room because starting in verse 4, we have this beautiful sense of hope in the character of God. Verse 4 starts with sweet, sweet, comforting words, but God. You are dead to your sins and trespasses, but God. You are enslaved to the ways of the world and its ruler Satan, but God. You are living to do evil and thus by nature were the object of God's wrath, but God. But God, rich in mercy, loved us. Just the thought of God's sweet love to a broken, pathetic sinner like myself wants me to stop the sermon right now and, and sing the doxology, but I'm not going to do that. One, because I have a horrible voice, but two, because we must continue. But there's a sweetness that comes with reconciliation from God or with God. My Greek uh, lexicon, when I was looking up the word uh, grace, specifically gives this definition. An act that one grants to another, the action of one who volunteers to do something to which he is not bound. Why did God save us, though he was not 
obligated to do so because he's merciful and because he loves you. God, in making us, saving us, loving us, does three things that kind of in juxtaposing what happened in our realities in verses 1 through 3. Now we see the renewal that comes in verses um, 4 through 7. In verse 5, it says that we have been made alive. In Christ, we are no longer spiritually dead. Rather, we can only, um, excuse me, missed my page. We are no longer spiritually dead, but rather alive. That is to say that we are united with Christ, that we have been made alive in our union with Christ. Second, in verse 6, it says that we were raised and seated. And Paul, in, in the first chapter, talks about the redemptive work that he has done in Christ by raising, lifting up Christ and seating him on the heavenly throne. And now, in the same work that he has done in Christ, he is doing through his people and raising us and seating us with Christ in the heavenly places. This isn't just a future reality. No, this is our current reality right now. As God's people, we are raised and seated with Christ. Not only by God's grace do we share then in the resurrection of Christ, we also get to share in the exaltation and victory of Christ over his opponents. So, we were children of disobedience who served the ruler Satan. Now we are children of God, children of righteousness who serve God and ultimately are trying to usurp and undermine the powers of darkness. Francis Schaeffer has a beautiful point that I just want to share when he he talks about, or this is a great quote, he says that the goal of the gospel is not to raise up a new generation of conservatives. Do I have your ear? All right. Rather, a generation of conservatives, rather to raise a generation who will become fundamentally subversive. The world is all about money. The world is all about injustice and perpetuating injustice and being unkind, and taking as much from others as possible. And no, that's not what it looks like to be a, um, a child of God. No, we, we promote justice, we promote mercy, we promote kindness. We extol the virtues of chastity and purity, because by our nature now, we are sons of God. What a beautiful picture. Finally, we're no, in verse 7, objects of wrath, like I said, but rather objects of favor and grace. Why has God saved us? Because in saving sinners, God might ultimately display his greatest glory in the renewal of broken vessels restored to what he calls the workmanship of God. God, the creator and ruler of all things, is pleased and delighted in his children. You are no longer acting in, in loving to do what is evil. Rather, you are an object of God's favor and grace. Abraham Booth, a Baptist pastor in 18th century England, wrote this about God's grace in our lives, the idea of grace, God redeeming sinners from themselves. He says, The most shining deeds and valuable qualities that can be found among men, though highly useful and truly excellent, when set in their proper places, and refer to suitable ends, are, as to the grand article of justification, treated as non-entities. This is where it gets especially good. For divine grace disdains to be assisted in the performance of that which excuse me, belongs to itself by the poor, imperfect performances of men. Attempts, attempts to complete what grace begins 
uh, betrays our pride and offends our Lord, but cannot promote our spiritual interest. So let the reader, therefore, carefully remember that grace is either absolutely free or it is not at all. And that he who professes to look for salvation by grace either believes in his heart to be saved entirely by it or he acts inconsistently in affairs of the greatest importance. Paul will sort of emphasize this even more, but we are saved in in our totalness by the grace of God, by nothing in us meriting some sort of salvation. So what is so amazing about grace? The fact that, as we talked about, a holy and just God would delight in his children and, and mercy would love us and save us. One night um, in, in, in a class in seminary, uh, and it was called People's Religious Traditions, we were talking about um, just common objections that we had as we're inter- having interfaith or inner dialogues with people of other religions. And in my, my uh, professor who is from uh, Ethiopia, and he's talked to a lot of Muslims, is he said, you know, the thing that we have to understand is we don't point out the fact that there's all these historical inaccuracies and textual inaccuracies within the story of Islam or within the story of Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses or Hinduism or Buddhism. He said that that's not really the place to go, that really people will just shut down right there if you, you just basically say, well, look how absurd it is that you would believe this religion that's clearly not true. Rather, he said that the point to go to is the fact that where do you stand with the God that you worship? And that's just a, a sort of a, an idea that I want to throw to you, that when you have those conversations, don't focus on the inaccuracies, historically speaking. Rather, talk about what's their status with God. How, at the end of the day, do they know that they are right in front of a holy and just God. Because Christianity is the only narrative, the only story that I know of that says that God the offended is also the means in which he provides substitution for the ones that have offended. And so that our salvation or the rightness that we have with God, is no, there's nothing in us. It's totally passive. And so um, I love that picture. And so for that moment, just to think about and this is something that I've said before, is that we understand that as God loves us, that he's kind to us, that hopefully this will stir this affection in our heart to say, I'm actually going to love God more than the sin, my pet sin that I've been entertaining. I'm not going to go there because I know what will happen. I want to live a life that is enlarged by, by the grace that God has provided. And so therefore, now we can pursue holiness and righteousness because we love the things that God loves. And so I hope that that would be uh, something that would be, um, what we would continue to be apprenticed by. The grace that God has showed us, though it spurs us to righteous living. Finally, point three, grace enables us to serve our Savior, verses 8 through 10. Verse 8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, is amplifying what we should already see and as already seems to be made clear, but I want to say that I think what this point point teaches, and I know that this isn't the official doctrine of the church, but I know some that hold this view, which is the one that I hold, is that not only were we totally depraved, that we did not desire the things of God, but also there is nothing in us that has 
caused God to save us, that because of his just good and free will, he has loved us and he has saved us. It isn't that we have been given a choice and we've chosen God. No, we would never choose God in our, in our state. God has provided the gift of faith for us to believe just because he loves us. And so I believe that God has saved his people and that ultimately that means that some uh, will not come to know the Lord and somehow in the mysteries of God, he holds both his, uh, God's sovereignty and human beings completely responsible. Okay, I hope I did not confuse you because this is important. If somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, explain that tension there, I'm going to say good luck. I cannot explain the tension that what I believe God's word sh- says, God is completely sovereign, has ordained all things, and that he's ultimately ca- counted human beings as responsible that that is a tension that is presented in Scripture that is just there and we have to deal with it. And John Calvin has a great place to say this with this, this point. It says that the reformer, John Calvin, offers sound advice, noting that when we come to the end of our logic, we should not turn from Scripture, scripture rather we should turn to the doxology. For a minute, just in that same point, try to explain the Trinity to somebody. God, three and one, but one. Or the dual natures of Christ. God, Jesus, both fully God and fully man. Do you get what I'm saying? That there is some mystery, there's some tension in Scripture that we cannot completely articulate so that every possible um, question would be satisfied. And this is one of them. That God has saved some and that yet at the same time He holds us responsible for, but for those God's people, we are to revel in the fact that God has loved us. But if we just stop at verse 8, and we just take, if we just feel good about ourselves because now we know that God loves us, then all we have done and all I've preached is a privatized and tamed type of Christianity that is prevalent in our culture. Right? Don't, don't talk to me about my spiritual life, my religious life, because that's private. No, it's not. We are called to be witnesses to what God is doing in our lives. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. John Stott writes, the British evangelist of the the 20th century, no one can emerge from the book of Ephesians with a privatized gospel, for it sets forth God's purpose to create a new society through Christ. For God's new society is characterized by life in place of death, by unity and reconciliation in place of division and alienation, by the wholesome standards of righteousness in place of corruption and wickedness, by love and peace in place of hatred and strife. We are vessels of grace. And now we have also become instruments of grace. One author has a book called Instruments in the the Hands of a Redeemer. And I was thinking about this. How, how can I illustrate this point? And if you go into like a pottery store, like uh, Lawrence Phoenix Gallery, for example, well, you'll walk into that gallery and you'll see some, some things that are on, on display. These beautiful uh, pieces of pottery. And you talk to them, and you're like, well, can I, can I cook with that? No, you can't cook with that because it has a, maybe a lead-based glaze. You don't want to cook with that. Or it won't handle heat or it won't handle cold temperatures. It's only ornamental. You only look at it. But then there are some 
Some, like uh, one that my wife has, it's a beautiful uh, mug with a, 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 um, oh, a piece of wheat on the side. It's, it's a beautiful handcrafted piece of pottery that isn't just wonderful to look at. It's also able to be used so that she can have her hot tea in the morning and drink it. There's a functional use of it. And see, I think that's what, what Paul is saying and that, that helps illustrate the point here when he says that we are God's workmanship that not only are we treasures of grace, of God's redemptive work, but we also have a place and a use to us. That we have a purpose, that we are supposed to be a part of what God is doing in renewing His creation. God has saved us by His grace in the hopes that now that we will be witnesses, testimonies. Right, The, early new, or the Greek word to witness is to testify that we would proclaim the grace that God has poured out into us into all of our relationships. And you know what? I love, I love some of you uh, that didn't know Christ and now that you do know Christ that you are constantly bragging on the redemptive work that God does in your life. I love that. You can't stop gushing about the ways in which you were and the ways in which you are now and how God has saved you. And it's just infectious. You're not in people's face Right? You're not standing on a corner, street preaching. No, you're just, you're just authentic. As God saves you and is saving you and redeeming you, you can't help but talk about that and want people to know that. But also, there's a sense, too, we also have actual work to do. So I could go and, and go on a little bit of a tangent to talk about the need for people to sign up for children's Sunday school or to sign up to help paint at Lion and Lamb West, or whatever other need possible that we may have, but that's missing it somehow, to, to some extent. That God has, if you can't revel in the fact that you are a workmanship of a holy and righteous God, and that you have a use in His body, the church, and you think that if you came to church today just because you needed your fill of religion and you needed to feel good, just only feel good about yourself or feel better about yourself, then, well, then we're doing a poor job as leaders proclaiming the truth of God's Word. That, we, that, that church isn't just so we feel better about ourselves. It's not only that. We're not just getting a spiritual pill. No, we, we are actually partaking in what God is doing in the world. And so you have a place not just serving in the church, which is an important part, but also in your homes, men leading their homes, exposing their children to the gospel, moms in service with the husbands. You have a place in your work. You have a place in your schools. You have a place to be workmanship of the goodness and greatness of the Lord Jesus. What's so amazing about grace? Well, According to Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it's amazing in that it shows us that we are in need of a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. Not only that, but it also shows us, grace shows us that we are objects of our Savior's favor and love, and that grace is also amazing because it enables us to ultimately serve our Savior. I read a story about a pastor who was once consoling a member of his congregation because the congregant thought that they had done too much wrong for God to love him. The member put it this way, How could God love me after all the wrong and evil I have committed? God should not love me. 
And this is what the pastor said. He said, you know what? You're right. He shouldn't. God should not love you. A holy and just God, by nature himself alone, should not love you. I hear people say this a lot, that God shouldn't love me. From the promiscuous teen to the mom struggling with a addiction or, or with gossip and slander or the father struggling with a web addiction or pornography or alcoholism or drug use or the love of money or love of power or whatever, a just and holy God should not on, those, on that basis alone love us, but, but God does because he is merciful and because he is gracious. He should not love you. He should not love me. And yet, on the confidence of God's word, today I am able to proclaim the truthfulness of the fact that by, but by love and God's mercy, you have been saved. And so for some of you that may not know Jesus as Lord of all, examine your heart. Again, just want to emphasize the fact that Christianity is the only religion I know, an ideology that I know, that that we can stand before a holy and just God who can declare us his children because of the work that he has done. And nothing in us merits that type of call. What is so amazing about grace that a holy and righteous God loves you and me despite the sinners we were and are? Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for your word that is able to not only cut to the issues of our lives and address the issues of our lives, but it also is to provide the hope that we need. And Lord, we can worry and fret about our finances. We can worry and fret about our schedules, about employment, about our children, about our parents, about our friendships and relationships. Those can all be places of anxiety for us, but yet you have given us a sense of hope in what you have done in the person and work of Christ. And that not only have you worked in Jesus, but you are also working in us. And Lord, I just pray that we would find joy in that. Lord, would that, would the truth of the gospel, would the truth of your grace poured out to your people Would that sustain us today and tomorrow and for weeks and months and years to come? May it be something that we go back to over and over again. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.